If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. Henry Kissinger is the last surviving member of the Nixon administration, a titan of foreign and security affairs, as national security advisor and secretary of state under that eventful presidency, and subsequently under President Ford too. With his 98th birthday fast approaching, Dr. Kissinger marks a lifetime of engagement in diplomacy with Russia, China and the Middle East at the top levels and spanning well over half a century. In that time, he's been on the forefront of the Cold War, brokering detente with the Soviet Union and orchestrating President Nixon's breakthrough visit to China in 1972. Controversially, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for his part in negotiating an end to the US's involvement in the Vietnam War. But his influence over policy in that era still fiercely divides opinion, not least over his support for the US bombing of Cambodia. Since leaving office, he's been a trusted channel for US statecraft and advised presidencies on grand strategy and the practical implications for politicians in the heat of geopolitics. He's also author of several books, including one on a topic that wasn't even around when he was in office, the impact of artificial intelligence on the balance of power. So this week, I'm asking, how does the best-known veteran of foreign policy see the great global standoff today? Henry Kissinger, welcome to The Economist Asks. Pleasure to be here. Now, you've said recently that the world is heading back to a time of great conflicts, potential superpower conflicts. Tensions between the US and China have brought that into the foreground. Do you think that that threat has got markedly greater of late? Over recent years, the dialogue between China and the United States has taken on increasingly confrontational character. And uh, the issues, uh, one side alleges, we allege, that the Chinese are aiming for global hegemony. The Chinese believe that we are intervening in their domestic affairs with issues defined like this. Every additional issue that might emerge makes it more and more difficult to come to an understanding, which I believe, in the light of the capacities of the two countries and the technological evolution, uh, I believe that some agreement on principle between the two sides is essential, and it will have to happen, and it will happen sooner or later. When you say in, in principle, I'm, I'm interested, what might that look like? I think the, the minimum understanding that is required is that the two sides exclude a high-tech war between each other. And secondly, that they exercise restraint in their relations with each other, but also in relations with the rest of the world. And on that basis, then one can take up individual issues as they arise. 
How do you assess the pivot of President Biden's foreign policy after a relatively short time in the White House, but he has come to power at a time of some urgent challenges, which we're going to dive into in a moment. Uh, what do you think of the thrust of his approach? President Biden has assembled a very competent team, and they are in the preliminary phase of coming to internal conclusions and in a sort of a feeling out process with the Chinese as to what a dialogue between China and the United States might look like. I think it is an improved tone over his predecessor and fundamentally a confrontation which challenges the basic structure of either side must be avoided. I start from that principle. And we are heading into a dialogue, I believe, that will allow this to happen. So you believe, if I understand you correctly, that President Biden is interested in opening dialogue with China, and yet his public pronouncements on trade, on human rights, on the relationship in general have been pretty tough. Is there a continuity, perhaps, with Donald Trump on that score, or do you see this as a new era? My instinct, based on no overwhelming evidence, is that Biden is attempting to balance his domestic pressures against his international necessities. Within the United States right now, China, as a threat, has become a rather commonplace view. And it's probably the case that the opposition party, that the Republicans, with whom I am generally associated, but not on this point, are probably waiting for some opportunity to demonstrate that Biden is soft on Chinese communism. So he is seemingly attempting to navigate between these conflicting uh, requirements to achieve some definition of the international order on which we in China agree in principle, leaving many issues open, but leaving that but settling that fundamental point and the necessity of maintaining a domestic cohesion behind foreign policy. That seems to me the basic issue. I'm going to return to China, if I could, in slightly more detail in a moment. But I felt that we should talk about uh, Russia because that situation is on many fronts at the moment very worrying. Obviously, the condition of the opposition leader, Alexander Navalny, who was hospitalized this week after his hunger strike and, and no sign there that the Kremlin is giving ground. We've heard Vladimir Putin just before uh, I came on air with you today, warning the West off getting involved uh, in this and talking about a red line on this and also on Russia's uh, apparent massing of troops on the border with Ukraine. How seriously do you take this situation? With Russia, we have not had a serious discussion basically since Crimea. So the Russian relationship has an immediacy of confrontation that the Chinese relationship does not yet have. On the other hand, in terms of Russian capacities, it is less objectively threatening 
to the West, but potentially threatening to neighboring countries. So if Russia now in the current Ukrainian situation reverts to the original Ukrainian crisis of some years ago and tries to settle it with military force, the consequences would be a dramatic worsening even of the level of relationships that now exist and then a conceivably greater lining up between Russia and China. So I believe a dialogue with Russia is also important and has been neglected by the West because it, the idea has gained force that it is not possible to negotiate with Russia and that one has to sort of wait for a Putin disintegration. And that is a very unstatesmanlike way of dealing with a historical process. I'm interested in how you would pursue that. You've met Vladimir Putin on many occasions, uh, as he's not very readily accessible in recent times uh, to many Western statesmen. You've probably had some of the most frequent contact with him. What is the right way to handle Vladimir Putin? Well, it is sort of an art phenomenon in the sense that there hasn't been a dialogue with Russia about the basic structure of the relationship between Russia and the West. There has been a lot of discussion about solving specific tactical problems, many of which concerning the situation in the eastern Ukraine, and they are in their nature do not have a very great scope. And there's a second problem, that the leadership in China, uh, even in the face of the uh, preeminence of Xi, the, the leadership is more broadly based and it is possible to conduct dialogues on a more general basis. While in discussions with Russia, the issue of who wins any particular diplomatic exchange becomes of great symbolic significance, especially to the Russian side. So paradoxically, even though the threat from Russia in terms of capacities is less than it was during the Cold War on a comparative basis, the dialogue has been limited to relatively short-term issues. And in fact, at least as far as America is concerned, very little conceptual exchange. Isn't it difficult to reach that conceptual level when you're in a situation now where the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, is in hospital, possibly, unless some different action occurs, dying in a hunger strike in protest at the treatment meted out to him and the opposition and an attempted poisoning at the Kremlin's behest. Now, the White House has said there would be consequences if he died. Do you believe that this is the right way to pursue this issue? Because this is something you have to get past, surely, before you can get to the bigger, the broader picture that you want us to engage with. Russia is different from European countries in its vast expanse. But on the other hand, it has always had 
a permanent sense of vulnerability, which it could overcome only by physical domination of its neighbors. There has never been an extended period where you could say that Russia participated in a world order. It did so during the Holy Alliance, but that was a very limited and basically one-sided relationship. Therefore, it becomes difficult to emerge out of the present definition of the issues. On the other hand, we, we cannot permit, as a general proposition, with the nature of modern technology, we are in a different position than the historical assessments of diplomacy. Historically, nations ended wars because they thought they could improve their position in some way, or they could obviate some danger in some, in some manner. But with modern technology, which is powerful and at the same time abstract, in which massive interventions are possible, which permit a debate about who actually did what, a world of permanent insecurity is going to lead sooner or later to an untenable situation. If one looks at Europe's historic catastrophe of the outbreak of World War I, not one of these leaders would have ended the war had they known what the world would look like four years later. We know pretty well what a world would look like if you had a permanent confrontation which, between high-tech countries. So the only solution, especially for the Russian problem, is for it to find a place for itself which does not create a general sense of it being isolated. Now, is that possible? It needs to be attempted, because the Russians will have to change the way they handle issues domestically. My challenge to this view might be as, as follows, and, and uh, some of my colleagues in different parts of the world, I think, have raised it in places they cover, which if your aim and if your overriding strategic arc is about, as you've laid out very eloquently, avoiding that risk or minimizing that risk of the big, terrible return of global conflict, what you then leave aside is the West having any agency to say something that might really change matters for someone in the position of Alexei Navalny to help Ukraine if it feels threatened by uh, Russia pressing forward and through military and, and other means. Indeed, if it comes to, to China and the Taiwan question, to something where actually your security guarantees and your bilateral or multilateral arrangements don't mean very much because all you're concerned about is the pursuit of dialogue. Is that a fair criticism? No. Dialogue by itself will mean very little. If the parties do not have an elaborated concept of a, a compatible relationship that might emerge from it, and dialogue by itself, unrelated to a conceptual view, can be self-defeating. It can become a strategy 
to weaken the adversary by creating illus illusory outcomes. So when I speak of dialogue, I mean a dialogue which is based on a concrete perception of what is required for, for world order. Now, in the immediate Russian case, I was against membership of Ukraine in NATO, of raising that issue, because that raised an immediate issue of moving a NATO border to within 300 miles of Moscow. And I thought the better outcome for which to aim would be a Ukraine that can act conceivably as a bridge between East and West rather than as the dividing line for either side. Because if the dividing line of the Ukraine is in the West, then Western, then Europe will be under constant threat. If the dividing line is in the East, then Moscow feels un, uh, under constant pressure. So an outcome something like Finland, in which the political position of the country is fairly clear, but the security position of the country is sufficiently amorphous that it doesn't lead to a immediate confrontation. It's what I would have preferred. I mean, in concrete terms, what would you now say to Mr. Putin? I think a military move by Russia under current circumstances would raise the most fundamental questions about coexistence and would mean a greater and necessary emphasis on military security. And, and everything I say about world order implies that the other party uh, will develop a parallel interest for its own reasons and because some of the necessities are, are mutual. So a initiation of military moves by Russia on the basis of my knowledge of the present situation, I would consider resurfacing the Cold War threat and that would require a different vision then I believe it's necessary and desirable. And we would have to respond with considerable firmness and decisiveness. I must uh, talk to you a bit more now about China, particularly given the fact that it's, it's 50 years ago, I think, since you were engaging with China when you famously uh, went to, to China and broke that long standoff with Beijing. You have strongly advocated working with China ever since. I'm going to say that the, some of the evidence doesn't seem entirely to be running towards vindicating your hopes of, of that time. A, a few examples would be uh, China's actions, including record numbers of Chinese jets uh, uh, in Taiwanese airspace, uh, bearing down on Hong Kong and extinguishing of freedoms, legal and political there. Human rights abuses in Xinjiang, uh, the rules-based order that maintains global stability does not seem to be applying very clearly to China at the moment. Doesn't this merit a harder line? I have never advanced the view that 
coexistence with China will lead to a democratization of China. I look at China as a long historical evolution, operating partly by confusion as well as by Marxist principles, which include an invocation for their country for the highest standard of performance. And to the extent that they reach that high standard of performance, a kind of majesty of, of conduct that will produce awe in other countries. But it's not based primarily on military moves. The question is whether a country performing at that level and the United States can coexist creatively. Because for the United States, we have never in our history encountered a country of that magnitude. It's likely to have that magnitude for an indefinite period of time. And is it possible to have coexistence between a democratic country and a combination confusion Marxist country? I believe it's necessary. I also believe it's attainable, but I don't believe it's automatic. So we have to define the issues. Now you take Taiwan, for example. In the Chinese perception, the relationship is between Taiwan and China. When we started the relationship 50 years ago, there had been 162 meetings between China and the United States on that subject which broke down on the first day of every conversation because China demanded that Taiwan be turned over and we insisted that the resolution be done by peaceful means. In the last 50 years, there has been an attempt to separate the historical process from the immediate solution in the sense that the United States did not insist on a two-China solution. And China, while it insisted on the historic relationship of Taiwan to China, did not insist that it be realized in any short-term sense. And this ambiguity created a space for a diplomacy within which the Taiwan issue did not by itself disturb the international order for well over 50 years. A, a question asked by one of my colleagues, which is perhaps will take us out of China and into something else we should talk about, the Middle East and interventions more broadly. He asks, as opening up to China on the Kissinger model turned out to endanger America's vital interests, not least in, in trade, and technology, and even the democratic idea itself. What do you, do you say to that kind of criticism? Everything I say in this respect on the technological side has to be based on the assumption that the West, or the United States in this case, is capable of meeting Chinese competition in the technological field, and that the United States' creativity can balance the Chinese apparently superior organizational ability. If that is not the case, if we and with us the West falls strategically behind 
in the field of technology, then the commercial competition will become probably untenable, but certainly very hard to maintain. And that would be a situation which I would consider a significant failure by the West. Assuming that we can maintain that technological balance, I see, I think diplomatically, I believe it is possible and necessary to come to some principles of coexistence, which should be first achieved as a general set of principles, and then will have to be applied from case to case and requires a thoughtful international system by which it is executed and will not be free of tensions and it will not have a terminal point after which we can all return home and say it's all over. It's an inherent process which will go on for the foreseeable future. Let us turn, if we could, to the the world and the world order after some of the big military interventions by the West or by America and its allies in the last few years, they're still very much at the heart of the conundrum on foreign and security policy and whether the projection of force is worth the cost. So President Biden has committed to pulling all US troops out of Afghanistan by September the 11th. The Taliban is as strong as ever in Afghanistan. Is this withdrawal taking place too fast? There is a nostalgia in America for believing that international problems are the cause of one particular situation and that if one can end that particular situation, the problem disappears with it. Uh, I don't share that view. And I lived through this in Vietnam. The underlying conflict doesn't end, but takes a new form. And then the outcome that results will create its own set of problems. And what one has to balance here is whether the withdrawal and with the predictable outcome of a continued Afghan internal situation, whether that is a better situation than maintaining a small force and some allied participation not to end the crisis, which isn't possible, but to make it bearable for the international system. Am I right in interpreting you as saying that you do believe it would be wiser to leave a small force in place rather than what appears to be the summary withdrawal from Afghanistan? I would have preferred this. And I would have thought also that if one looks at the future of Afghanistan, the experience of the establishment of Belgium in the 19th century could be useful in the sense that if one could get the interested countries not to commit themselves to a particular form of government in Afghanistan, but to an outcome of an application of neutrality under present circumstances. That means the absence of terrorist training centers. Uh, and that is an issue on which Russia, China, India, 
and the United States ought to be able to come to some long-term understanding. But I respect the decision of, of the administration. It is at an early stage of its, of its evolution, and it has a lot of pressures on it. Among difficult choices, it has chosen the short-term, less obtrusive, but long-term, probably more insecure. You mentioned uh, Vietnam fleetingly there, and I wondered, when you look back, you've had this extraordinary life and longevity in foreign affairs and massive influence on administrations, the Nixon administration you worked in, but also those that, that followed. Are there moments, I'm thinking about Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Bangladesh, and everything is sort of interconnected in, in that time of turbulence in the late 1960s and 70s. Are there moments when you wish you'd taken a different course of, of action? Of course, it was my unexpected fate to be involved in the Vietnam War because uh, my major focus previously had been on Atlantic relationships. And one forgets that President Nixon took over a war in which there were already 550,000 Americans in place. And therefore, that is not an effort you can turn off like a television channel. Could other decisions have been taken? This has been bitterly debated. Our conviction was that given the international responsibilities of the United States, we could not simply sacrifice an allied country to communist pressure. And within that framework, we withdrew gradually. But by the end of the war, there were only 20,000 American military forces left in the country in what we thought was a sustainable position. But we could not imagine Watergate. And then to maintain such a situation with a presidency in a process of disintegration that was beyond any statesmanship. But this is something that will be debated for a long time because Profound emotions were involved on all sides. And one can even argue, as I would, that some of the current intensity of our domestic debate had its origin in the Vietnam period, in which the good faith of government itself became one of the key issues. I suppose the other angle on that. It's really what what were called the kind of sideshows, that the countries that were materially, often tragically affected, uh, Cambodia, the paving of the way to the Khmer Rouge regime and all of that that followed when it came to the US involvement in the bombings of Cambodia, which uh, you, you, you were around at the time you approved at the time, Bangladesh in the 1970s before independence, Pakistan was a US Cold War ally involved in the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Bengalis. I 
I wondered whether, in a sense, it's sometimes these countries that are dragged in or territories that are dragged into the conflicts that haunt you. If you look at these issues in terms of the immediate domestic situation, you have one view. And if you look at it from the point of view of the strategic analysis, take Bangladesh. The myth is that the Nixon administration was callous about the suffering in Bangladesh. It is not usually explained that simultaneously Pakistan, of which today's Bangladesh was a part, was our only channel of communication to China and that the opening to China was in the very process of being culminated. But even with that handicap, if you look at the Bangladesh outcome, within a year, with the policy that was then conducted, Bangladesh was independent and capable of its own determination. The relationship with India has constantly improved ever since. So I would say not only was there no irremediable damage, but if you assume that thoughtful people were trying to conduct policy, they might have made wrong tactical judgments in any one week, but their strategic judgment did not turn out to be so wrong. With immense loss of of life, 200,000 according to CIA estimates, a lot more according to the Bangladesh government, which puts it in millions. Look, Bangladesh was a conflict that was imposed on us. We had no interest or or participation in it. And there were horrific atrocities committed. But after one year, if you compare it with the Syrian evolution, our general view has probably been vindicated, but we should never ask somebody who was involved to criticize his own policies because if we didn't think we had a strategic purpose, we wouldn't have done it. But uh, I would not defend every single decision in retrospect. But I also would not put it under a label which has become too commonplace of being able to dismiss the real and fundamental issues that were involved. I'm keen to move us to the the present. So I'm going to spin it to a place that you and I both know and have a great fondness for, and that is Germany. At a moment of transition this year with the departure of Angela Merkel after many years in power, the possibility of a chancellor emerging even from the Green Party, which was something I think, I'm not sure you would have predicted, or maybe you would in your many years of engagement with Germany. What is your feeling about where Germany stands at the moment? And will you miss the Merkel years? Merkel was a distinguished chancellor who, in a very difficult period, managed to play a major role in European unification in the problems with Russia and in the relations with America. Germany is sort of 
historically very complicated case because it is the last country in Europe to be unified. And when in 1871 it was unified, the British Prime Minister or Disraeli said this will have a greater impact on the world than the French Revolution. And he was right, because one of the problems Germany had was how to position itself, because united, it was more powerful than all of its neighbors. And the generation that lived through the war is now in the process of disappearing. So I would expect that Germany will face serious domestic debates about how to position itself in the various issues that you and I have discussed, which in the German mind, the issues will be not identically perceived with Britain and France, for example. What what would your advice be to the successor to Angela Merkel? My advice would be that whatever the practical views are, a reputation for reliability and steadiness are essential for a successful German policy. And they're also essential for international order because a maneuvering Germany trying to place itself between all the conflicts can only aggravate the situation. That would be my advice. But then I'm not of the generation that has to make the decision. I can't let you go without mentioning that you're writing a book at the moment uh, on leadership. You you don't rest much, do you? I think if it's all right to give away that you're not very far short of your 98th birthday and, and still writing books, enjoying it? I, no, I actually... I don't particularly enjoy the process of writing. It has an element of self-torture in it. But I do it. The book on leadership, which you were kind enough to mention, takes an examination of Margaret Thatcher, de Gaulle, Nixon, Adenauer, and Lee Kuan Yew in terms of the impact of leaders that were more or less contemporary and tries to draw conclusions from their performance. Do you see great statesmen now as you look around the world? There's a a tendency to cultural pessimism, isn't there, in politics and leadership, which is always convinced that the last leaders were in the past. No, I, I think that if you look at the statesmen I'm describing, they all lived in a society in which there was some static element of beliefs from which they could project into the future. And there was some space for reflection. In the modern society, so much effort is needed to manage the present that some of the best minds get exhausted by solving the problems that present themselves without raising the problems that they should put before their societies. And so in 
almost every state, there is a reduction in the visionary quality of statesmen and in a funny way in the self-confidence of moving into a period which is by nature uncertain. Uh, Henry Kissinger, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I, I was, As we were doing our research, my producer uh, reminded us, of course, you're so familiar to economist readers for many, many decades. You even featured in one of our adverts. Do you remember what uh, I think recommended that one read The Economist in case you ever had to sit next to Henry Kissinger on a flight and you would then know what to say? I haven't had that problem. My problem has been how to break off a conversation. And my seatmates on flights did not seem excessively inhibited. We're very pleased that you haven't been inhibited and been so generous with your time to take a global view with us today. Henry Kissinger, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for a very fair interview. And we'd love to know what you think of our encounter with the grand old man of international affairs. Who's the next great statesman or is the very idea a relic of a disappeared world? Would you talk tough to Russia and China about human rights abuses or rely on engagement and detente? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you do remember that advert for The Economist featuring Dr. Kissinger, it was, of course, about getting new readers to subscribe to us. We very much hope this podcast has piqued your interest in our analysis of breaking stories all around the world from our fantastic team. And as we look into a new era, we have a great offer for our podcast listeners. Do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer wherever you are. My producer today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>